Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome back, everyone, to a Pain Talk podcast. Today, we're going to dig into medical marijuana, and this is going to be over a three-week period of time. So I'm going to try and break it down because it is a big topic, very, very topical right now, very controversial. Uh, one of these areas that, uh, in particular, as a physician, I feel sometimes that we're in way over our head. And we have individuals who are, who are using cannabis understand it so much better than us. But we have been given that that uh, oversight. Uh, we didn't really want it as a profession. <laughs> I think most of us would agree with that. Uh, but no other profession would actually stand up and uh, provide the oversight that was needed for medical marijuana. So we do need to get ourselves educated. Um, so it's very, very important. So the important thing I want to mention is that I have no disclosures around medical marijuana. I'm not paid by any of these companies. So I'm coming at this with uh, just looking at the evidence, looking at an approach, um, and uh, so we can uh, bring us through as we come through this. So I think most of us, I'm going to kind of put this out there. I probably, not everybody, but I'm sure that most of us have tried marijuana in our lifetime. I remember as a young person trying it, did not like it. Um, and uh, I know that on a day-to-day basis, I'm asked about medical marijuana and to regarding med- making med- uh, recommendations for medical marijuana for my patients, especially in the palliative care practice. Um, I do hear it in the chronic pain area as well, but we'll bring in some of that evidence as we go along. So my question to everyone is, how confident do you feel recommending medical marijuana? And I think if I lined up 10 physicians, nine of them would say, I do not feel confident at all, not only in just recommending it, but knowing what I'm recommending. And then there's the other piece where I'm supposed to provide this oversight. So I'm supposed to be providing this close observation that I would do with other types of pharmacology. But somehow I feel that when that medical document goes out there, that I lose control over what happens, how the patient is adjusted, what they're actually using and getting clarification around what they're using, and even me understanding what that actually means. So it's um, quite interesting to talk to colleagues. And, you know, when someone comes into our office and says, look, I'd like a script for cannabis, please, most of us sit back and say, well, what does that actually mean? It's like going into a liquor store and saying, I want liquor. So that can mean all kinds of different things. And the same thing happens with cannabis because there is so much out there. It, it comes in different types of formulations. Uh, people are using it in different ways. We have patients that have been using it for the majority of their lifetime uh, and those that are very naive. They've never actually used cannabis before. And so they are very vulnerable, especially in the elderly. So what we're going to cover in this, when we go over the, the three podcasts, is that what is medical marijuana? What evidence do we have that it actually can improve quality of life? What are the rules for prescribers? So I'm going to take this podcast to focus more on that. Uh, how do we manage risk for the patient? Or my question is, can we really manage risk? And if not, what should we be doing? How should we be uh, guiding our patients? Because our patients are coming to us and asking us for information. So we need to get ourselves more educated around this. So here's what we know. Marijuana does help some people. 
But the evidence is more anecdotal than it is evidence evidence. So that, that, that evidence that we like to see, those randomized controlled trials that are not industry sponsored, we don't have a lot of really strong evidence around that. So mostly it, it is around patient experience. So that anecdotal evidence is much more powerful than the randomized controlled trials that we know that are not industry sponsored. We also know that it is causing harm, in particular to youth. And I'll bring in some of that data just so that we're more aware. And Health Canada has a great site. Every three months, they're required to post data. What are the trends that are happening in Canada? What are the populations that are using cannabis? Um, so we can sort of respond and react to that. So the beauty of legalization, and I'm all for legalization, is that it has allowed us to study it. So that's the important thing, I think, about legalization, is that we're going to understand this plant better try and get the science that we need. Um, now, one of the downsides of legalization is that there's a perception out there because it's legal, that means the harm of using it decreases, right? Because it's a natural plant. But in fact, and then there's a perception that because it is natural, that the benefit increases. So that actually has created um, sort of a, a mis, uh, misunderstanding or a misguided information that's out there. And if people are getting their information from the internet, it can be really overwhelming. Uh, and there's a lot of myths and misinformation out there. So all of us have to be very cautious in terms of what we're pulling off that internet and come back to the evidence that we know. So our journey to cannabis legalization actually began in 1997. So cannabis became legal in Canada in 1997. That was about 22 years ago. So in uh, 2013, there was an overhaul of the legalization uh, court ruling that uh, uh, Supreme Court at that time uh, wanted to uh, revisit this. There were some challenges that were happening. So in 2013, there was an overhaul. At that time, physicians uh, were designated as the gatekeepers. Um, now, with that 2013 legislation, uh, patients were not allowed to grow their cannabis. But so what they did is they took, took uh, uh, Health Canada back to court. And in 2016, they were given the right to actually grow uh, cannabis. And so they were given the right to grow four plants. In October of 2018 is when we had recreational cannabis legalized. So uh, medical marijuana became legal in 1997. Recreational became legal in 2018. So Canada is only the second country where cannabis has been legalized. So as I mentioned, there's some great data that you can get. It's called the National Cannabis Survey. So every quarter, uh, Health Canada has to post this data. It's very, very interesting. So the last bit of data came on there in July. So there should be some more that's going to come in uh, October. So that should be pretty soon. And what's what's striking when you look at this data is how many more men compared to women are actually using cannabis, both medically and non-medically. So there's about uh, a good third of the more, more men that are using cannabis than there is. And a very small percentage of patients who are using medical uh, marijuana with medical documentation. There are more that are using it medically without medical documentation, as well as patients who are using it recreationally and medically as well. So uh, there is a, also a large proportion that are using it non-medically. But there's some great graphs that you can find uh, on that Health Canada webpage. So why are patients requesting medical marijuana? There's lots of different reasons. So uh, they've read on the internet that there's a health benefit. Um, in our palliative care practice now, we're starting to see this infiltration of this Rick Simpson oil. We'll talk about that, where this is going to cure cancer. And that's probably the saddest 
misinformation that I have found that's been out there. And typically, these are the younger population that are bringing these to their loved ones, you know, their their mother or their father who've been diagnosed with cancer. And I call this navigating hope. So if we step back and recognize that when, when someone has been given a life-limiting diagnosis, we're going to do anything we can to make sure that they stay around as long as we can. And this is where um, it becomes very tricky sometimes when you're trying to navigate hope around a particular substance that you have no evidence to support its use. So this Rick Simpson oil, as a healthcare provider, we need to know about it. We also need to know about the risk uh, as an individual who may want to use this. Um, so what is the risk uh, for me when I'm using this? Other reasons why patients are requesting medical marijuana is that they feel that it's safer. So you're looking at the fact that it's uh, not being an illicit market that you're buying it from. It's actually being bought from a licensed producer who has some tight control, so has some regulation. So this is a harm reduction strategy that's also important. They want to avoid criminal charges. Maybe they need to have that medical documentation because of child protection, or they can actually get some insurance coverage for the medical marijuana. They also may want our advice, so they get the physician involved because they need some advice. There's someone that doesn't use cannabis very much but really want to try it for their condition. Uh, they also need it because of their job. Um, or they may also need it uh, for things like, um, um, you know, as we mentioned, uh, sort of treating a particular type of illness. So there's different reasons why patients will come to us. And it is important to kind of dig deep to find out what their motivation is and what they think it's going to, how it's going to help them. So um, for me, the question I always love to ask patients is, tell me what you feel that cannabis will do for you. So who regulates uh, medical marijuana and who provides that oversight? Uh, medical cannabis is actually regulated by the federal government. It's one of the reasons why you will see uh, healthcare providers, in particular physicians, that can come into a province like Nova Scotia. They may be from Ontario. They can work for these uh, companies that are uh, distributing cannabis but they don't have to actually have a medical license in that province because it is regulated federally. Another medication that's regulated federally would be methadone. So me as a prescriber uh, of methadone, I can write a script for someone in Alberta. Um, Nova Scotia has some barriers, meaning that if you're coming from Alberta and you're using methadone either for pain or for substance use disorder, Nova Scotia does require the prescriber uh, to go through their prescription monitoring program. Most other provinces don't do that. I think Nova Scotia is the only one I've seen. There, the other kinds of regulation that happen, they really are balanced between the federal government, provincial, and municipal. So it is really quite confusing, depending on the community that you live in or what province you're in, because regulation can be different. But one thing is constant is that medical cannabis is regulated by the federal government. So the licensed producers are all over the province. And uh, I think the last number I saw was about 253 licensed producers. So they are required to meet certain standards. Health Canada wants to make sure that the product that they're producing is safe for human consumption uh, within in, uh, for individuals. So there is a lot of oversight and control. So what is the authorization process for a patient? So the first thing they have to do is to find an authorized healthcare provider that can be a nurse practitioner or a medical practitioner in Nova Scotia. And then they need to get a signed medical document. So physicians are not prescribing can medical cannabis. What they are doing is recommending medical cannabis. On that medical documentation, the authorized healthcare provider 
needs to indicate the daily quantity in grams of the cannabis. Uh, the Canadian Medical Association asks us to also indicate the percentage of THC that we're actually dispensing, percentage of THC and CBD. And step three is that the individual gets their cannabis. So they can submit their medical documentation to a licensed producer. They can register with Health Canada to produce their own. They can actually designate someone. So this is these... these um, these compassion clubs that are happening. So what the individual with the medical documentation is doing is designating those compassionate clubs to actually uh, obtain their cannabis and dispense it. Um, or you can have a licensed producer send it to the healthcare provider who has authorized the medical cannabis. So that can happen. And that was set up primarily for uh, provinces that are very remote so that you didn't have any distribution uh, type mechanism there. But it is a conflict of interest in some ways for a doctor and nurse practitioner to both complete the medical document for patients and to access medical marijuana and also to be a licensed producer or supplier. So there is some conflict of interest there. And I know that our College of Physicians and Surgeons do not recommend that we do that in Nova Scotia because it does create some, some conflict. So ideally as well is that the medical documentation that we need should not come from these licensed producers. They actually should come from the medical documentation should come from Health Canada. And that is a recommendation. It's no different than if I was prescribing an opioid, I wouldn't go to the producer of that opioid. I would use a very, you know, sort of non-company-based prescription pad to actually make a recommendation around the particular medication. So, there were, so that is the same kind of flow that we want to see with the medical documentation, is to use Health Canada's uh, medical documentation for the access of cannabis for medical purposes regulation. And they're very easy to find. You just kind of put that into the computer and you can download that, uh, that, um, that document. So what are some of the uh, rules around uh, medical marijuana. So the rules limit the total quantity of cannabis that can be transferred at any one time. So if I'm getting cannabis from a medical producer, so what Health Canada says, you can only actually, the total quantity that you can transfer at one time is 150 grams of dried marijuana, and that's in a 30-day period. So the Canadian Medical Protective Association, so some of their rules and regulations is that physicians should only sign. So these are regulations primarily geared to physicians. I don't have those regulations around nurse practitioners. So physicians should only sign the medical documentation when they have the necessary clinical knowledge to engage in a meaningful consent discussion with the patient. So you have to have that conversation with the patient. So that's the recommendation of the CMPA. If we look at the College and Physicians and Surgeons of Nova Scotia, so this came out in June of 2014, and obviously colleges, other provincial colleges are going to be different, is that physicians may only authorize the use of marijuana for medical purposes when in direct, in-person contact with their patients. The college also prohibits physicians from billing patients directly for services related to the authorization of marijuana for medical purposes. And this is problematic for some of these physicians that are coming into the province who are not from Nova Scotia, are not registered in Nova Scotia, who are charging patients for these medical documentations or for the licensing. This is really something that kind of irks at most of us. Me as a physician who is recommending cannabis uh, or has some concerns about re recommending cannabis, 
that patient can actually go around me and go to one of these uh, these uh, compassionate clubs or one of these areas where a physician who has come in from another province has set, set up shop, and they can actually bypass me and get that license. So that is concerning because the college says that we can't do that. So how is it that a physician who's coming from another province can actually go in there? So this is an area that is quite, quite concerning uh, for most of us that do this work. So if we look at the College of Family Physicians of Canada, they have a great document out there as well that helps guide us. I give this to patients all the time. Okay, these are the rules and regulations that I have to use as, a, as an individual that has control over the documentation. So this is the authorization for dried cannabis for chronic pain or anxiety. So this is a, a document that really looks at, okay, what the evidence is, who it's recommended for, um, and who it is not recommended for. So it's very, very clear, uh, very good document. So what the college says is that physicians should assess and monitor all patients on cannabis therapy for potential misuse or abuse. It's like any other substance that has the ability to alter or change our brain. There is a risk for problematic use. There is a risk for addiction. And the younger that person is, the higher the risk. So 90% of all addiction happens under the age of 30. If you repeat that activity over and over again, it has the power to change the person's brain. Now, addiction is a very rare complication, but it is a real complication. Anywhere between 9 and 11% of individuals can be at risk for addiction. So the other thing the College of Family Physicians of Canada says that the authorizing physician, if not the patient's most responsible physician, should communicate regularly with the patient's family physician. So these physicians uh, who are recommending cannabis to patients who are they are not following are not making those contacts you know with family physicians are there some physicians out there that are doing that there are they tend to be physicians that are practicing in Nova Scotia but the physicians that are coming from other provinces are not consenting or working with the family physicians of these patients so that is also problematic so if we look at the College of Family Physicians of Canada, who shouldn't use cannabis? So they have made some recommendations that are really important. So because of that risk of uh, substance use disorder and problematic use in young brains that are changing so they are more vulnerable to neuroplasticity, is that they do not recommend the use of cannabis for anyone that is uh, 25 and under. So 25 years and under the recommendation is for them not to use cannabis. And that's because of the risk of the brain being altered or changed. Now, when you look at recreational cannabis, however, the age limits are very different. So if provincially, if you look at Alberta, PEI, and Quebec, it's 18 years and younger. Every other province, it's 19 years and younger. So those are very high-risk years. And this was one of a, a point of contention when the uh, recreational cannabis came to legalization, is that they were recommending it in ages in brains that were really too young. And I'm going to share some of the data at some point. It's quite stunning when you look at the who is actually using cannabis, you know, in Canada. Uh, it's important to kind of pay attention to that as well. If you have had a personal or family history of psychosis, you shouldn't use cannabis. If you've ever had an addiction to cannabis or a cannabis use disorder, so that's when cannabis use can, we talk about the four C's, it's compulsive use, cravings for use, use despite consequences, you're not getting to classes, you're not, you know, you're getting in trouble with the law, you know, all those things are, are indicators of addiction.
If someone has an active substance abuse disorder, so if you're somebody who has an alcohol use disorder or an opiate use disorder, you really shouldn't be using cannabis. If you have any cardiovascular disease, so ischemic heart disease, peripheral vascular disease, or arrhythmias, you shouldn't be using cannabis. In particular, you shouldn't be smoking cannabis either. If you have any kind of respiratory disease or if you're pregnant or breastfeeding. So these are some of the uh, important things that we need to know about who shouldn't use cannabis. So also some recommendations that came out initially with this legalization is recommendations regarding driving. So users should not drive for at least four hours after inhalation. Uh, for eight hours following use, if euphoria is experienced, so that's the energy that some people can get. Not everybody gets that, but it's because of how it can impact the brain. So we know that the area of the brain that can be triggered around some of these substances is that energy or euphoria or pleasure is one of them. So um, so if they're experiencing euphoria, it's not recommended that they get behind a uh, wheel of a car because they're more likely to make poor judgment around speed and around all that excitement piece, right? They also recommended that you could be impaired for up to 24 hours following a single consumption of cannabis, especially if you're using very high potency THC um, or if you're somebody that has never used cannabis before. So these are some of the recommendations around uh, driving. What I'm going to do is I'm going to stop there. Uh, the next time when we come back, we're going to talk about cannabinoids. So recognizing that these are class of chemical compounds that act on cannabinoid receptors. And the two big cannabinoids that we're going to talk about is THC and CBD. So thanks for joining us. And hopefully we'll get lots of feedback. We've been getting some feedback, making some adjustments in how we're doing this podcast. So hopefully this information will be helpful. So we'll end it today. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.